Join us for our first virtual event of 2021, After Dark Open Finance Fact or Fantasy. Open finance is still a pretty new concept, but what opportunities and risks does it present? Find out how your business can leverage open finance as we bust some of the biggest myths about this trend at our After Dark event on the 17th of March. Stay tuned for some of the guests who will be joining us. And register now to save your spot for free at bit.ly forward slash after dark open finance. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Square launching its banking operations, First Boulevard raising $5 million for black community focused neobanks. And the Crowdcube funding record was smashed by nothing. All will be explained later. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 508 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, and today I'm joined by my very wonderful 11FS colleague and co-host for today, Mel Stringer, product delivery lead at 11FS. How are you doing, Mel? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. I think it's the first time that we've been together on this show, so I'm really excited. Yeah, um, and I'm also got... quite giddy. Yeah, me too. I'm really excited, and we've got some great guests as well, so it should be a good one. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. So, yeah, you mentioned our guests. Let's bring them in because we are not alone, and even if it is remotely, uh, which is hard to believe that that's still the case, we are joined by some awesome guests. So. Making a FinTech Insider debut, we have Asia Bradley, uh, founder and COO of First Boulevard. Asia, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ross. Happy to be here. Excellent. The pleasure is absolutely ours. And I know it's been a, an awesome week for you guys, uh, which we'll come to shortly, but really great to have you with us. And making a welcome return to the show, we also have Anna Herrera, FinTech correspondent for Reuters. Anna, welcome back to the show. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. A pleasure, as always. Um, all right, so it has been a big week of fintech news, so let's jump right in. Um, our first story comes from Square and concerns uh, Square Financial Services beginning its banking operations. So on Monday, Square officially launched its banking operations. Um, Square's new wholly owned bank will offer FDIC insured deposit accounts and loans to small businesses that have historically used the company for payment processing. Square submitted its application back in September 2017. From there, it was amended in December 2018 and finally approved as of March 17, 2020. Now, a year later, as Square has satisfied all of its open banking requirements, it is ready to open the business. Bringing banking capability in-house enables us to operate more nimbly, which will serve Square and our customers as we continue the work to create financial tools that serve the underserved, said the Square CFO. And there's an interesting point here around um, maybe diversity and inclusion. 58% of loans through Square Capital go to women-owned businesses, an interesting comparison when compared to 17% of traditional loans. Likewise, 35% of loans through Square Capital go to minority-owned businesses compared to 27% of traditional loans. So, Anna, as a fintech journalist, I'd love to come to you first on this one. What, are your, what were your thoughts when you read this one? 
It's interesting. I mean, I think if I'm not incorrect, which I hope I'm not, but I remember when they had applied, I asked what the consumer angle was, and there's no consumer angle with this because the license is just for small businesses. And it's interesting that the license finally comes when it seems that Square is pushing more on the consumer side of the business. Um, and, and it's probably because of the year we've had and, you know, small businesses in particular, ones that have actual storefronts have been hit really hard. And so I wonder like how this might help them um, recover that side of the business. Obviously, payments is still doing well, but lending is not. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's interesting timing. Obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a big deal that, you know, fintech firms are getting licenses now. Um, it would have been even more interesting, I think, if they'd gotten something for the consumer side of the business, which which has exploded. And as you know, we saw today, um, you know, the Square also announced that they they bought a majority um, stake in Title Jay Z's. Uh, is it? I think it's a music service. I don't know if it's streaming or not. Um, and, and it's. I mean, obviously, the, I guess the synergy there is more with the consumer side. I think. Um, so it's interesting. They're investing so much on the consumer side and, and, and they just got a license for the small business B2B side. Yeah, I guess for me, there, there's a there's a sort of overarching theme, which is around inclusion and probably bringing um, people across groups into formal financial services um, that perhaps have previously found it difficult or had been excluded. So obviously they're... Um, they're, they're, they've enabled um, much smaller and more diverse businesses to accept um, card payments. They've also, through the cash up and the, the consumer offering, I think made financial services, formal financial services available to uh, consumers that perhaps had previously been excluded through high street banks, etc. And I think the interesting thing about the Tidal move is I think Tidal is a, a streaming service and it's, I guess it's hook or it's angle is that it's very much focused on the, the artist community and enabling the artist community and, and giving them more powerful financial tools to, you know, including getting paid, et cetera, but to really empower that artist community. And I see, I guess, um, inclusion is, is something that's sort of in your DNA. So it'd be interesting to get your, uh, your thoughts and opinions on that one. It is, Ross. And I think you're hitting on it. Um, you know, I think it's not just the consumer play for title. Title is more about the artist management and empowering the artist to be able to launch and release their own pieces and actually own it. And I think one of the key points there also is um, crypto. Right. Um, so being able to actually get paid out in crypto to, for an artist to be able to own their own music, their own rights and sort of launch something direct to the consumer and then getting paid as well. So to me, the whole title and, and square and in cash up, all of that together makes complete sense. Um, and, and there is a huge sort of participation of the black American community on title on cash app. Um, so it's, it's funny because like everyone now is very interested in the black community, uh, whether they're out there saying it directly or not. Um, you know, we all know that the predominant user of a lot of these fintech apps is black America. Yeah. And it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, especially what we've seen with the sort of unrest, um, last year and, 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 and the sort of black Lives movements really black lives matter movement that's really gained momentum off the back of that and you're right it's it's great to see um people generally but you know um people that had previously been excluded enabled by these new challenger propositions um 
Mel, really interested to get uh, your thoughts on this one, right? Because this is a really big, uh, a really big story. What were your thoughts when you read this one? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot to there's a lot to unpack here. I think about um, you know Jay Z joining the um, the Square board. I think that that signals um, that they want him to be sort of a trust beacon for people. And um, I, yeah, I think it uh, generally will will lend some. Uh, advantage and you know rep- reputational awareness um, to to what they're trying to do generally. For, for me, I think that the idea of the um, industrial bank license completely makes sense, and the focus on um, the the small businesses. I mean, we've discussed a lot on this show around um, the backbone of America being small businesses way way more much much more so than in Europe and um, in in the UK and I think that the idea of um, blending the um, you know democratization of opportunity and credit and access to um, fintech and uh, all of the trust beacon um, you know elements I think that that layers up into a wonderful opportunity um, for perhaps black entrepreneurs and um, people who traditionally maybe wouldn't have opportunities with more traditional banks. Yeah, and 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 actually, actually back to you because I think that's um, such an interesting point that Mel's made, and, and and sticking with that sort of diversity and inclusion piece. If you're enabling founders from more diverse communities, surely those guys are a better place to solve for the the types of problems that actually affect their communities. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the things that we're doing at First Boulevard quite intentionally is ensuring that the product that we're building is built by the people that we're serving. And so our our team, for example, two thirds of our leadership is women, two thirds of our leadership team is black, um, 100% of our leadership team is BIPOC. We've got pretty much gender parity across the company. Um, you know, 85% of our company is BIPOC. And so these are the kinds of things that we're looking at. And, you know, we, the melanated community in general has been excluded from the formation of the financial sector in general. Um, you know, it, it carries its roots in imperialism and colonialism. And, and so we know, you know, who essentially were the leaders in that space, right, um, historically. And so now it's a chance for, um, for people like me and my co-founder Donald to sort of, you know, enter the stage, it's a chance now for Jay Z to actually be part of the board at Square, um, and and you know, especially considering who the customer is um, of Square and Cash App and you know, and Title. So it, it it only makes sense finally for there to be some you know black and brown voices at the table and at the at the leadership and helm of these companies that are being that are building products for that. Yeah, community. I couldn't agree more. It just makes sense getting that diverse range of opinions and perspectives to feed into your decision-making function. It just makes sense. Um, oh, sorry, Mel. Um, so another thing that I think is really interesting about this uh, this story is which big tech companies are deciding to get into banking and which ones are not, which ones are actively um, you know, not doing that. So we've seen that um, Google has specifically stated that it doesn't want to um, become a bank or have a, a banking license, um, and a lot of them, a lot of the big tech companies are going down the partnership route instead, which I think makes sense. Um, so it's interesting to me that Square has decided to go, you know, the other way, and I'm wondering if this is them double downing on their focus um, on 
you know, helping women-owned businesses and, uh, you know, those minority-owned uh, businesses as well and being uh, the, the obvious choice, really, the obvious banking choice rather than trying to appeal to everybody and perhaps not to be so diversive to the traditional partners that maybe the likes of Google will have. Yeah, and what I think is fascinating is like, Payments are complex, right? I think to most people, they're probably a black box. And I think that's particularly true on the acquiring side. And I think that's just been this huge barrier to entry. And we've seen very little by way of innovation. And we've seen very little by way of sort of differentiation on like the proposition layer. It's pretty much all just been on um, on price. And, 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 you know, we've seen these payment facilitators like Square, like Stripe, come into the market and sort of disintermediate from the, the sort of acquiring bank through APIs, but actually what they've been able to do in the process is start to actually build out the propositional layer on top and start to differentiate in that sense. We've seen, I think we talked about Square Capital, they've um, even gone down the road of starting to offer some embedded finance offerings, allowing their, um, their merchant customers to offer delayed financing options to, to their clients. So I'm interested to understand what the other um, the other potential revenue opportunities are do they go down the route of like a shopify balance for example and offer um embedded finance to their sub merchants um or is this something and, and i think this goes back to your point mel of what they're actually trying to do is build out a, a richer ecosystem for their um for their base of of consumers and anna i wonder i'm interested to get your opinion what do you think about how stripe have sort of grown their customer base how they've very stealthily grown their sort of product offering and, and sort of where do you see them going from here? Oh, sorry, Square. Um, so it's it's really interesting. So I think, you know, it's part of my job, obviously, I follow them, I follow PayPal. And PayPal for a long time has been talking about having a um, a community that's or a network that's, that's double, right? You have the businesses and the merchants and then you have the consumers. So I've very much seen in the years that I've covered them, Square build out the, the, the consumer side that they had less. And as I was saying before, it seems like they are pushing on, on that angle a lot, right? The, the consumer, but on, sort of on the acquisition, I guess everybody on this call is very enthusiastic and, and loves Square. But, you know, my job is to be the skeptical one. Like they have tried to expand in, in, in other verticals. They did um, food delivery, right? I think they sold caviar. So, you know, I get the whole, I get why it makes sense because there is a lot of synergies between the title users and the, and the cash app users and but you know it might, it might also not 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 work like did they need to buy it could, could they not have just you know asked jay-z to join the board and uh and then you know provided payments like you know it seems like a very expensive bet and so i'm curious to see what analysts will say they, they tend to have a lot of fanboy analysts um that's a, i guess happens in, in calls there too but um you know, I'm, I'm curious to see what, what, what they'll think from a, you know, financial perspective. Is, is it too much, given especially what, what happened with Caviar? And there's this tendency of payments firms to go down verticals. So, okay, we're going to start doing payments for music. We're going to start doing payments for medical. So it, it, it does it does make sense, um, especially because, you know, as I said, they're also very much in-store payments for merchants. And so now they're probably trying to expand digital payments for merchants as well, where, as you know, you mentioned Stripe or Stripe is kind of the leader. So it's it's definitely interesting. And, and as you're saying, it's, it's great that, you know, there's finally some, some 
racial diversity on, on boards. So Anna, even even Anna, like um, if you look at Cash App, like that came out as a bit of a gamble too, right? They didn't know what kind of pickup they were going to see there. And and I recall when it first came out and I saw people, you know, doing it, just really using it for the P2P component. And I think that's where it got very exciting and really popular for folks being able to pay each other and their friends and um, even for work, right? So this isn't just people just, oh, we went out for dinner and we're splitting a bill, but this is an, an economy sort of a situation when it, when people are actually paying each other for you know gigs that they've done for one another. But what we saw was when they first came out, there wasn't that FDIC insurance coverage, right, on these accounts, and people were storing balances in their Cash App account. Do they do they have the FDIC now? So I don't know. Well, that's what I'm hoping that they that this sort of this move is kind of hopefully moving in that direction. But I recall at that point being shocked because I had heard of some folks that, you know, anecdotally, of course, talking about, oh, I have this like painting business and I've got, you know, a balance of twenty thousand dollars in my cash app account and kind of telling them, hey, go tell your dad not to do that, because if he reads his fine print, it's not FDIC insured. Right. Yeah. Um, And people didn't know that. Um, so I'm hoping, you know, and, and I, I, I'm also a Jack Dorsey Stan fan. So kind of let's see, let's see if he does the right thing on that front. But I'm, I'm hopeful that he will. So I mean, I, th- I think that um, I think these new deposit accounts are definitely um, FDIC right. insured. So I mean, but but they're but they're 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 for businesses. They're not for consumers. I think right. But if if That's there's true, a way yeah. if there's a way to do a, an LLC. So I think this is this is the point I'm trying to make. If you are a point a painter, right? You are a painter. You can go ahead and get your LLC. Now you can open up a business account. Now you're being able to collect payments for the business you're actually conducting and have a legitimate financial sort of presence, right? The the biggest problem that the melanated community faces, uh, one of the biggest problems is the fact that we are Mm -hmm. invisible. You know, I myself, when I came here to the USA, I couldn't, I did not pass KYC, you know, I, I don't I don't have a Peloton bike behind me because I don't pass KYC. <laughs> like I literally can't even buy a Peloton bike because as an immigrant, you know, the American sector or financial sector doesn't see me. Um, so I do see this as a chance for smaller businesses. And that doesn't mean like a building, a shop or something, but literally painters, plumbers, um, anyone that is providing any kind of service. Uh, within their community can actually open up an LLC and open up a business bank account. I think that's a very smart solution. I think that's really smart. Um, yeah, definitely. We need that on banners to let people know that that's an option because, yeah, as you say, that's a that's a great way of um, leveling the playing field and becoming perceived to be more legitimate, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, being able to now offer these FDIC-insured deposit accounts, um, I absolutely agree, is a game changer. and It means that you can have a fully insured um, deposit account rather than using a a cash app account because that's the only option that's available with you and actually all of the lack of protections that are sort of uh, you're exposed to there. I'm going to but Anna's on. point, sorry, but Anna's point is right in terms of they got to do mm-hmm. something on the consumer side too. Like it can't yeah. just be here. Uh, there are a lot of people that are won't be able to open up an LLC and won't want to. 
one last point that I think is also pretty interesting is that <laughs> on the cash app thing, um, it, you know, it makes up over 50% of their gross annual payment volume and it's their, um, you know, it, it, it comprises the majority of their um, gross profits as well. So I'm wondering actually, to your point, Anna, if the thing on the consumer side is because there's less financial overhead if you don't have to have all of those secure systems and uh, it might, guarantees in place. I, I don't know how it's changed throughout the years and if it's also due to the fact that maybe seller payments have gone down a bit or maybe not I'm, I'm not sure i didn't actually read their full well i think one of the the bigger issues is that you don't have faster payments um rails in the u.s in the same way that we do here so something like a venmo or a, a cash app is, is is the sort of next best um so i expect the volumes are really rather high um okay i am going to move us on um to our next story which i'm very excited about um, it comes from Finextra in terms of the story itself and concerns First Boulevard raising $5 million for black community-focused neobanks. So First Boulevard has raised $5 million in a seed funding round joined by Barclays, Anthemis, and angels such as Gabrielle Union, John Buttrick, and Jameer Jackson. First Boulevard is a neobank focused on the black community, which has set itself the goal of helping black America build generational wealth. Founded by Donald Hawkins and, of course, Asia Bradley, the startup is building a platform that offers fee-free debit cards, financial education, a black business marketplace, which gives its members cash back for buying black, and technology to help members automate their saving and wealth-building goals. First Boulevard has 100,000 people on its waitlist currently, with an expected launch in the third quarter. So, Asia, um, I think it would be remiss to obviously go to anybody else uh, first on this story. Um, so, first off, of course, congratulations on the funding round. Um, I'd love to sort of hear more about that and about um, the vision that you guys have as well, obviously, um, firsthand. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, it's it's been really exciting. Um, honestly, Donald, Donald and I, when we first decided to do this, um, you know, it, it really was catalyzed by the murder of George Floyd last summer. Um, we both, you know, had our day jobs. You know, we were both very successful in the fintech space. Donald and I are both serial founders, um, and and we got to a point, you know, uh, at least. For me specifically, um, when George Floyd was calling out for his mother on the pavement, you know, it felt like such a punch in the gut for me. And, you know, I've got three sons of my own. Our oldest son is half black. Um, you know, Donald's wife was expecting um, their first baby boy. And we each sort of reached out to each other. I remember calling him up and kind of going, hey, how you doing? You know, like, well, I, I don't I don't know what to feel right now. I don't know what to do right now. Um, and then he was like, I've got this idea. And I was like, I'm in. I don't care what your idea is. <laughs> I'm just, I'm in. We're going to do this. And we literally quit our day jobs. You know, we quit our day jobs right then and there and said, we are doing this full time, um, fully expecting that we were going to have to bootstrap this thing. Um, but, you know, we knew that we had to do it for our children, for the future generations. And, and just it wasn't enough to just keep working and making money. Um, and so so we 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 were lucky in that we started kind of just put our heads down, started building, brought on some other team members. Um, 
and got to work and then word got around somehow through our networks. And before we knew it, you know, uh, we ended up raising this $5 million raise. We have incredible capital partners. I mean, Anthemis um, is just is just incredible. You know, our, our investors there, um, Jillian and Katie have been super supportive and they, they were just right you know, alongside us from the minute they heard our story. Um, but what we're essentially doing is is helping the Black community that has a collective spending power of $1.4 trillion annually. We're helping them to basically take back that power and, and, and sort of see if we cannot, you know, circulate it within the community through the Cash Back for Buying Back initiative. Um, and and, and that's, that's sort of one of the little things that we're trying to do. But you know, it, it all kind of begins with that one step of like, we've got to take action. And, and that that was essentially where Donald and I started. It's, it's an incredible story. I mean, it was um, just the, the, the most powerful sort of scenes at the time with George Floyd. And you, you capture so well, I think, the, um, the reaction that we all had. But I mean, what's so commendable is that you guys, you know, got up and, and, and really did something. And I know we sort of touched on this, I see a little bit in the uh, the previous story, but I know that the issues that you guys are trying to address are, are really just so systemic. They truly are. Um, you know, what we're seeing really is that um, there are fewer black homeowners in 2020 than there were in 1960. Right. Um, the wealth gap is the worst that it's ever been. And by 2053, the median income for black families in the U.S. is going to fall to zero dollars. Right. And, and that's so these, just horrifying. I can't. Right? It's just awful. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and this is this is what we're fighting against. Um, and, and so the, it, we do definitely feel that sense of urgency. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's, statistics like that are genuinely staggering. I mean, there was a study by the, the Brookings Institute recently that revealed a racial gap in every income group. Um, except the bottom quintile, where the, the median net worth is, is sort of zero for everyone. It's statistics like that. I mean, Mel, I'm sure you've got some thoughts on this that, that just really blow my mind, but, but really go some way to sort of illustrate the, the problem that um, Asia and other founders in similar positions are up against. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, the, yeah, the fact that you guys are actually doing something about this. I mean, as Ross says, I think everybody felt uh, appalled and, um, you know, the heat of of this situation um but i don't I, th I don't think most people know what to do and so the fact that you're doing something and the fact that you're empowering other people to buy black and to you know um in a small way every day try to fix the fix the structural racism gap um i think is amazing and yeah, I think it will give people a lot of peace in really weird and interesting ways. But I think I remember, you know, in 2009, um, I was just sort of joining the financial world and we had uh, the financial crash and everything. And there were all these horrific stories. Um, I actually worked for um, a US um, company at the time, but there were all these horrific stories about horrendous loans that were being targeted towards um, black families and, you know, subprime mortgages and um, people on Wall Street getting bonuses to 
you know, ta- target these demographics. And so now we're seeing the second fallout and ramifications. So, you know, people's parents had these tremendous issues and it affects everything from your career prospects to which university you can go to, if you can even go, if you can see your way out of like immediate debt or helping your family. Um, and I just think that, yeah, the structural racism problem and the lack of um, level playing field, um, particularly in the US, is just absolutely horrifying. Anna, I guess as a, a journalist, you're really at the sort of coalface of uh, trends in the in the industry, etc. Do you, do you get the sense that this is a sort of a growing space, an emerging space, one with a, a bit of a spotlight on it that people are really trying to solve it? There's a real um, emphasis on this now. Yeah, and and I, you know, I, I wanted to ask Asia how much how much did the current environment help you guys raise? Because obviously, one of the issues that that you know, uh, non-white founders, other than also women in your case, is is that you know it, it's so hard to, to to raise funding in another environment. So I wonder whether perhaps this this moment was was you know unfortunate for many reasons, but also good because it because you you had the attention. Sorry, I, I am asking yeah. questions rather than answering <laughs> professional deformation, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I, I can't answer that. I mean, I can't look into any of these investors' minds. Um, what I can say is that Anthemis has always been about this. So this is not something that's new for Anthemis and Barclays. Um, you know, they were, I'm actually, they invested in us. They were, there was a bit of an internal sort of conversation whether they should invest in us through their main fund or their female innovators lab. Um, and so I think ultimately um, FIL won over uh, the the main fund. Um, so I think, you know, if I'm talking about Anthemis, absolutely, this is, this is in their wheelhouse. They've been doing this from the beginning. Um, Sean Park, who's the founder, essentially, this was his vision and and it didn't take George Floyd's murder for him to take action as well. So I think that there are, you know, some amazing people in the field that have always been about this. I will say, though, is that um, I'm really, you know, excited by seeing things like in the news about like Jay-Z and, you know, Will Smith stepping up and, you know, a lot of other folks and, you know, seeing a lot of these other affinity banks that are setting up, you know, such as Daylight. Um I think it's super important, you know, and and if the social, um, you know, situation that's happening right now can encourage other VCs to follow Anthemis's suit, um, you know, more power to them. I hope that that's the case. And 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 what I would say to all founders out there, you know, black, brown, women, um, you know, non-binary, like just go for it. Go for it now because, you know, now is the best chance you've got. So I think, Anna, there might be something to what you're saying. Um, I just, I know for Anthemis, they, they've just always been about it. Yeah, I am. Um, I was also thinking just, you know, we did obviously like everyone, we, we did stories at the, at the time and I, I was still in New York. So with a colleague, we wrote a story about Harlem and small businesses there and how they'd struggled um, to, to, you know, get loans. And it was a bit better with PPP. But, you know, a lot a lot of the sense that I got was that they were kind of disillusioned. You know, they were reading all these statements from banks and we're going to put 500 million there, 1 billion there. And, and I wonder if, you know, they'll be able to distinguish between clearly, like if you see a very different looking CEO from what you're used to, it, it probably helps. But I wonder if there are just, there'll be just a sense of, oh, it's still finance and it's kind of rigged against us. Or, you know, if, if there'll be more, you know, 
kind of confidence in, in your apps? Yeah, no. And that's a great question, because like right now there there are only 19 black banks in the USA. Right. And collectively, they only hold five billion dollars in assets. Now, when you compare that to the $1.3 trillion in, in you know, economic impact that the Black community has, that's abysmal, right? Um, so, so definitely there is that natural distrust. Um, and so that's why we're hoping that because we are a neobank, that you know we do sit outside of that structure somewhat. Um, and, and we are acknowledging that there is nothing wrong with the Black community. You know, the consumer that is struggling right now, they are not broken the system has been designed to not include them. The system has not been designed, you know, with their success in mind. Um, and so a lot of people are like, yeah, the system's not working. It's like, no, the system is working exactly as it was designed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our hope is now to build something different, um, you know, by, you know, the people that we're serving. And so that's that's kind of where our hope is um, in terms of the makeup of our team. And, you know, we'll hope that the trust is there. And reinvesting it into that black community, right, Asi? I know that's a big part of what you guys are doing. Exactly. Um, exactly. Do you get the sense, and I'll finish on this question, do you get the sense that, because um, there's been, I guess, a couple of false uh, starts at sort of this, uh, to try and do this in the past, and I just wondered whether you're feeling optimistic, like we can really sort of deliver that generational wealth now and have a sort of, and make a difference in a sort of meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the differences that I would say between you know any any companies in the past that have tried to do this, um, the main thing that that I see is is with with me and Donald, we both have been in the fintech space for a while, so we're veterans, right? We we know the fintech space. Um, we we're not just you know a rapper that decided to open a bank, right? Um, we we get fintech. Um, I was one part of the founding team at Synapse Financial Technologies. We essentially built out the banking as a service sort of industry. Um, you know, I've helped hundreds of companies kind of go live th- through their integrations with us, um, you know, at the time. And so there is a lot of experience behind this understanding you know, the regulatory space um, of banking and then also understanding the amount of freedom that we can have if we're employing the right tech. So so there, that's one of the differences. Um, and then also the fact that, you know, we're not just a bunch of men, right? The, the market that we're serving is predominantly female. In the Black community and also in the Brown community, the female tends to be that financial household head. And so, so it's, it's really key then that the product is built by melanated females. And, and, and that's what we're doing, you know, very specifically, because we understand what the needs are. Um, we, you know, I, I, we, we developed a persona. So essentially, we did a lot of customer discovery. We spoke to um, a bunch of folks where we sort of asked them different questions in terms of what is it that you would be looking for in a bank. Um, and we developed a persona. We call her Nia. So Nia is in her 30s, mid-30s, mid to late 30s, highly educated, has a bunch of student debt as a result, you know, probably has a master's degree even, um, is, is the financial head of her household, 
has a lot of weight on her shoulders in terms of the responsibilities she bears, probably got into a little bit of credit card debt as well because she didn't quite get the advice from her parents, from her family in terms of how you manage credit card debt. Um, And now we're trying to help her move from that debtor stage that she's in into a saver stage and then moving her from that saver stage into an investing you know stage and then from the investing into finally you know becoming an investor in her own community and so those are the four main stages that we see our customers in um And then we also have a secondary persona, which is like Kyle and Maya. They are younger, they're college aged. You know, we call them Miles collectively, Um, but they basically are are in college. They haven't yet, you know, kind of gone crazy on the credit card stuff. So hopefully they don't have that debt. Um, And we're hoping that we'll sort of start them off with some really great financial hygiene practices and, you know, start them off at the state, the same. Yeah, building out those really positive and and beneficial um, habits and behaviors around money. And I think to to discuss those use cases, I think it's just so helpful to illustrate what it is exactly that you guys are trying to achieve. And I know, like, we wish you every success and we'll be keeping a very keen eye on uh, where this goes from here because it's um, it's such an important issue. Okay, and we are just going to take a quick pause here. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Okay, welcome back to the show. Our next story comes from the Evening Standard and concerns the FCA hiring a top team of women to stem financial scandals. So new FCA Chief Executive Nikhil Rathi has brought in a top team of women uh, to executive roles across the regulator to repair its reputation after a series of savings scandals, including London Capital and Finance. The Gloucester report found the regulator fell short in the way it repeatedly missed red flags, failed to act on concerns from the public, and was culturally weak when it came to enforcement to find wrongdoing and protect consumers. Rathi claims to be reorganising the regulator to have an increased focus on consumers. These new hires are, of course, part of that change. Stephanie Cohen, a senior executive at BlackRock, will become chief operating officer. Jessica Rusu, a former eBay Europe Data Analytics Director, will become the FCA's first Chief Data Information and Intelligence Officer. Sarah Pritchard will become Director of Executive Director of Markets in charge of supervising companies' behaviour. She is currently a Director of the National Economic Crime Centre. And Emily Shepard, formerly of BNY Mellon, will take up the new role as Executive Director of Authorizations, a role that will act as the gateway to companies and individuals wanting to do regulated financial services activity. Um, so with International Women's Day on Monday, when this show publishes, um, I'm just going to throw this out there. What do you guys think of this? I don't know who wants to come in on it first. I'm game. I'll, I'll talk first. Um, so I think this headline is kind of funny. You know, FCA hires a team of top women. Well, you know, they're just a team of top people. It's great that they they are women, but um, by all accounts, it seems like they're all supremely qualified and um, 
you know, have a have a ton of experience that's really, really relevant. I do think that uh, the fact that they're all women and they're trying to, you know, solve some uh, structural problems within potentially how we govern things, I think that's really, really positive. Um, and you know what? I think also if hiring women now is a proxy for trust and uh, will do a good job, then I'm kind of all for it. I think that, you know, in the short term, we can have a little bit of latitude and just, you know, accept that um, women on boards and in senior leadership is is still quite new in a lot of segments. So however, we're reporting on that, as long as uh, younger women who read the news are thinking, okay, well, this is possible, then surely that's a good thing. I I completely agree. And I think it'd be nice if um, women were brought into these positions before they had to be brought in to clean up a mess, which is kind of, you know, what this, <laughs> what this article is driving at. For I sure. mean, uh, Anna, what did you think of, uh, I mean, the headline, which I completely agree with Mel, seems a little bit, uh, a little bit ill-advised, but the article itself. So I'm, um, with the headline, I kind of agree. I'm, I'm, there's, I'm Italian. There's this a famous sort of Italian commentator, a feminist commentator, and she always gets very angry when she sees headlines saying, you know, central bank hires woman. It's, it's never like hires the name of the woman. So, but I guess the one thing here is that it would have been, they probably wouldn't have fit. So I, I, it, it's, um, I guess that's a justification. It, obviously, clearly, I mean, I, I, what I find more interesting moving beyond the fact that they're women, which is great, because um, it's still a big issue everywhere, is, is you know, I, I was looking at the sort of data, head of data, former head of data analytics, which which is really interesting, right? Like it, it clearly means that now the FCA probably has a lot more chops in terms of analyzing what data they get sent from financial firms, right? Because just historically, you know, financial regulators have been understaffed and under uh, you know, they have they have less money than than the the, the companies they surveil. And so I, I've always imagined them receiving like tons of data and then just like the, having no idea, like not, not no no time or no or no not the, the equipment or whatever they need to, to actually sort it through. So maybe they are receiving stuff that that should raise red flags, but they just haven't had the capacity um, to, to deal with it. So it'll be interesting to see if if you know their their data strategy improves. And you know, there's so many areas where. You know, one area that I'm always thinking about is, you know, on, on alternative lending. And, you know, there's so much talk of, you know, we're using other ways to assess consumers. And, you know, is, do the regulators have the necessary know-how to understand whether algorithms are discriminatory? Like, you know, there's so many questions there. It just seems like the, the industry is ahead technically than, than the regulators sometimes. And, and that puts, you know, surveillance not, not on a great footing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and, and sticking with the theme of the story, I think, um, you know, areas such as sort of data analysis um, and, and, and certain areas that, that sort of go alongside that, I think there's always been this sort of idea that, um, you know, that, that, that women are underrepresented. So it's great to see um, a woman take on such a senior position, such a prominent position. And as you quite rightly say, Anna, I think one that potentially could be hugely significant in terms of the role that the regulator plays going forward. I think we've touched on this um, probably across all of the stories that we've discussed so far, but again, having that that broader and more diverse, I see a range of perspectives at that decision-making level, you know, it's only, it's only a positive, right? 
Absolutely. And I think it's great that, um, you know, it's not just that one token female that's being brought in, but, you know, really sort of a group of professionals that are coming in. Um, Because one of the things that I've seen quite often happen is that you'll have uh, a a huge problem that needs to be solved. Um, And then, you know, they'll bring in a woman, the headlines hit, and then suddenly everyone is just gunning for her to fail. Um, And then, you know, the following headlines are like, oh, and she failed. Um, And so at least in this case, you know, there are three coming in at the same time, super powerful, super qualified. um, And the hope is that, you know, all of them together will be able to clean up the mess. But yeah, echoing what Anna and Melissa and and Ross, you said was like, essentially, it's a shame that, you know, they're having to bring them in now when the mess is already made to kind of clean up that mess. Um, And and how awesome it would have been if, if, you know, women could finally just enter a a workplace and be able to do what men do, which is just kind of come in and do their job rather than having to come in and clean up before they can do their jobs. Oh, I find that so interesting, especially around um, this impetus to make changes or have to take action as a result of seeing something that's that's wrong um, and to sort of clean up. Um, yeah, I think that's super, super interesting. And, um, you know, we see here that Rathi is saying that she's um, she's claiming to be reorganizing to have an increased focus on consumers. So I wonder sort of how that shakes out. And, you know, already people are saying, well, actually, do you know what, if we do that and if we enforce these new rules to protect um, consumers, then it's going to have more weight on fintech. And so there's already kind of seeds of negativity coming in around, you know, what she's trying to do, because obviously if she changes something, regulation has to change, then it takes a time to adjust. And, um, you know, I guess that the whole point is that she doesn't want to just maintain the status quo because then the, uh, you know, the fintech industry in the UK just won't won't evolve as it needs to. Yeah. And, and, and what's interesting, particularly when you're talking about um, the new rules to protect consumers, though, is that there's lots of evidence to suggest that um, women are a lot more empathetic when it comes to, you know, designing um these new rules and these new regulations, how will that feed in? I think that will be really interesting. For sure. Um, but Mel, just to pick up on something you said uh, in, a, in, a, in your earlier comment, I think we've probably circled back to a little bit is this is sort of showing hopefully a younger generation of, of girls that this is possible um, and that women can be in the, these positions. And, you know, hopefully as that evolves, we do get to a point where they're not just being brought in to clean up messes and actually this is something that's just a lot more normalized right yeah for sure or um that you know through throughout the the layers of organizations um, women feel that they can speak up and um there is this sort of mutual mentorship i mean that's what i would love to see right i would love to see um, more organized mentorship between women in different organizations and um I guess, well, coaching, helping people to navigate different situations and experiences and so on. Because you you tend to find that you'll have a few women who are a little bit like battle hardened. I suspect my female colleagues on this uh, this podcast are to, to some extent um, have been through the ringer. And um, I think sometimes, you know, particularly in financial services, um, some really great empathetic, gentler souls um, have have decided to pursue other opportunities in different industries. And so to have the appropriate level of diversity, we need to be creating 
space and opportunity for people to do their best work. I totally agree. And then Anna, one one, one point that I'm just interested in is so that the, the government this week has urged companies to appoint more women to, to senior executive posts. So I just wonder whether that's something that you think is helpful or does that actually take away from what we've talked about hiring people just because they're the best fit and the best candidate? I think, you know, ages ago, I was writing about a sort of Davos diversity at Davos. And I think I'd spoken to someone and they were discussing the usual, you know, quotas on boards and there's people that are against, women that are against it. And someone told me, you know, if we didn't impose stuff, it, it'll take like 80 years for things to change. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that, you know, most of the people that will be appointed will also be great at, at the job they do, but they would be passed over. And, and if it's just helping companies look beyond the usual white men to appoint on boards and, you know, it's, who's, who's, it's, it's not really harming anyone, I think, right? Like it, it, it you know, and, and and just even just in terms of like the discourse in a country, right? To have a government say we care about this is important because the little boys listening and the little girls listening know that as a society we value or should at least at the surface of things value diversity, right? So I struggle a bit to to say, oh, then you'll appoint women. No, I, I totally agree, and I think it's I think it's such an important point because it's starting to shift the the narrative, um, and I think that's exactly what we need. Um, okay, I am going to move us on. Um, our next story also comes from Finextra and concerns uh, Revolut, Starling, and Wise bosses among 15 CEOs joining Bulb's Tech Zero Task Force. So 15 UK CEOs have joined forces to create a Tech Zero Task Force with shared commitments for environmental goals like reaching net zero carbon emissions. The task force is the brainchild of energy provider Bulb, whose CEO and co-founder Hayden Wood's plan is to host a launch summit in the coming months and agree on commitments on carbon emissions, green investment, and helping customers make greener choices. So after that, the commitments will be opened up with the aim of getting 1,000 UK tech companies to agree to them before the UN's COP26 climate conference in Glasgow this year. We need bold action to avert the climate crisis, so we've brought together the UK's most exciting and innovative tech companies to determine the best path to net zero as fast as possible, said Wood. Tech Zero will go beyond targets. We want to boost access to finance and make the UK the number one destination for green investment in the world. So, Anna, what I really like about this is we've seen a lot of um, sort of big announcements, kind of like empty PR stuff from a lot of big banks that say, oh, we're going to be um, net zero by 2050. Um, that are typically very light on the detail, if there's any at all. What I like about this is that these, this is a group of people saying, let's go further, let's move faster, um, and, and, and let's do things, you know, in a way that's slightly more ambitious. So what were your thoughts when you read this one? As I say, I'm skeptical. So I'm skeptical whether you're a big bank or you're a small startup, right? Like it's still good PR for them, whether you're small. And, you know, banks do have thousands of employees more than they do, thousands of offices more, thousands of like physical footprint more than a Revolut or a starting bank. So it is, even if we say they have the same willingness to do things and it's generally the same motivation, it, it would take a bit longer. Um, and, you know, also I'm wondering, you know, when I, when I, when, 
I saw Revolut, you know, they allow customers to buy cryptocurrencies. So there's a big question, you know, what is the environmental impact of cryptocurrencies? It depends on the cryptocurrency. But so far, like we've spoken to, you know, ESG investors um, and experts, and they think that Bitcoin for now is not ESG friendly. So, you know, maybe look inside and then, <laughs> I don't know, will they, will they tell their customers you should buy, you know, beware because this is not great for the environment for now? Will they not? Like, as a, as a whole, I'm just generally super skeptical of groups of companies coming together, making announcements that sound grand, and then you know let let's see what 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 they'll do, because obviously that's like or else I'd be a cheerleader. I wouldn't be a reporter. <laughs> yeah, you you'd expect a startup that is led by generally their founder, so is more mission driven to to have more of a push towards these things, right? Obviously, it's not a given, but you know I'm I'm not enamored or like thinking, wow, let's see. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally with you on that, Anna. I'm so with you. And then also, if you look at even um, all the founders, I mean, I haven't had the chance to kind of go through and, and you know, click on their pictures, but I'm, I'm going to guess that there's a bit of a, a homogeneity there as well. Um, and so I think, you know, if you're talking again, you know, we're <laughs> coming up on International Women's Day. I, I think Grasshopper is, is a female, right? Um, but but Starling as well, right? Starling. Yeah, Star Starling, yes, Starling as well. Yep. But, you know, um, and is there any racial diversity in that group? Right. And and we all know um, that it, it is, again, the melanated communities that suffer the most from the environmental impact as well, that a lot of these white led, white male led companies um, are, are, are really kind of, yeah, putting out there. So. Yeah, which is which, of course, is part of the reason that it's been um, ignored for so long and, and, and not properly yep. addressed. It reminds me of um, actually there was this like during so last summer, you know, at the height of all of the the Black Lives Matter movement, and there was like a fintech coalition that was all about race and things, and it was all. Do you remember this? It was like Vero yeah. Money and and all of like and and um, and it was all yeah Betterment Vero Money uh -huh. and, and it was all white men on on this alliance, and I thought wow because I know I know so many black and brown. Um, fintech founders, and I thought none of them were invited um, to this alliance. And so I thought, nah, not good, mm -hmm. not good, not a good look. And I often also find that companies are very, it's easier to get them to declare intense yeah. and or, or even like turn the narrative of their company towards diversity when it suits, but then it's very hard to get them to disclose internal numbers or like actual yeah. internal figures about, you know, you were mentioning the numbers with Square, like, you know, those are the numbers they're showing us. What what about the the other stuff? Like, you know, um, so yep. so yeah. I think with this, it's it's healthy to be skeptical, right? Because that way you're pushing people to to actually achieve what they say they're going to achieve. I think the tech zero thing is um, is pretty interesting, though, right? Like to your point, Asaya, um, about the uh, organized um, what was organized greenwashing, I suppose, um, which which I mean is good on the face of it because, of course, we want the UK to be what are they saying the number one destination for green investment in the world. I mean that sounds amazing, um, but I think it might be interesting to see actually how many of these um, companies IPO in say like the next five years, right? Because there's so many different pension funds and private investors that are moving their focus more towards ESG investment. And so if you can have like a ready-made cohort of 
brilliantly performing uh, financial services companies and they're all kind of, uh, you know, they've got a green tick next to them, then that would be sort of obvious for structuring those um, financial products and um, the economy in the future, I guess. I was so pleased, Melda. Um, you sort of almost offered a sort of like contrasting um, positive viewpoint on this. And, and I totally agree with your point. I'm sad to bring it back to a sort of like place of skepticism. I am so taken by what ESG could be and what ESG could deliver. Um, my issue is how ESG has been sort of um, interpreted and sort of applied to now. I think we've ended up with these um, ESG sort of ratings companies um, that nobody really understands the models. Nobody really understands what goes in to come out with these um, ESG ratings for each company. But, you know, I know that we've had companies, fast fashion companies like Boohoo.com, for example, come out of one of these really, really highly, you know, a week or two before a whole heap of stuff came out about how they were treating the workforce, not paying them properly. And obviously, of course, the, that doesn't even begin to consider the impact that fast fashion has on the environment. Um, and, and, and I do wonder where the burden of responsibility lies, because we've got these fund pickers, these, these fund managers um, who are, in, in my opinion, sort of swerving the responsibility. They're looking at these the ratings that are being given to these companies by these rate, ratings agencies and saying, all right, well, that's enough. They're not supplementing it with any of their own um, due diligence or research. And then people are buying them. And actually, is that should that suggest that the burden of responsibility sits with the individual investor and that they should be keeping the pressure on the um, on the fund managers? But what I think is interesting is how do you move beyond ESG being a page, a forward and a prospectus and actually sort of going right through strategies from top to bottom? And we have started to see some innovative sort of emerging challenges coming to market like um, – Kogo, for example, um, that is a, a footprint tracker, so it'll show you in real time the footprint of the, the purchases that you're making. Um, and then other ones like Climate, which are their whole mission is obviously um, sustainable investments and sort of driving investments towards sustainable companies. So I think where my skepticism is in all of these sort of announcements and sort of ESG and all that sort of stuff I actually think really it's the individual consumers that are driving this, and I think that's likely to continue. All right, I am going to move us on to the stories that we didn't have time to cover. Um, we are getting to the end of the show, so let's round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover, but that still deserve a shout out. So Mel, do you want to kick us off? Yes, absolutely. So the first story is from the Financial Times and it's about Ant Financial. Um, Jack Ma's Ant Financial defies pressure from Beijing to share more customer data. The People's Bank of China has long wanted to create a pool of credit data to help big state-owned banks assess the creditworthiness as uh, consumer loan defaults have increased. Ant has agreed to provide some information to state-backed um, database on the 500 million customers who've taken out loans, including their personal identities, monthly borrowing amounts, and debt repayment statuses. But the company has shared little of its data, and the PBOC is unhappy with progress. 
Ant has blamed privacy laws as users must give their approval before the company can send their information to the central bank, and only a fraction have agreed to do so. But the PBOC is pushing companies to find ways to share data, such as requiring consumers to agree to data sharing as a condition of using their services, a measure Ant is loath to implement for fear of scaring off um, customers. Well, I'm personally really glad that Ant is sort of standing up to the um, the government there, but there seems to be this increasing tension between the private sector and the government um, generally. And um, you know, it's only the latest dispute in a series of issues with, um, I guess, the government and uh, and financial and um, the officials halted the company's um, IPOs you know, days before it was set to um, list in November. So they're obviously taking quite an aggressive, um, quite an aggressive action and intervention, um, particularly to Ant Financial. But, you know, it seems a little bit concerning that um, the People's Bank of China are, are trying to actively encourage new companies, new fintechs to sort of hide those data sharing clauses. Um, so I wonder how that will all how all that, that will shake out. Uh, back over to you, Ross. Yeah, and I think that um, that situation between uh, Jack Mann and Financial and the uh, the powers that be, I think, is going to it's going to continue to rumble on. Totally. I don't know if anyone's seen him recently either. I think that there was a sighting of him a few months ago, but I've not really heard anything since. I think he's back in the mix, but he was uh, definitely lying low for a while. Okay, um, our next story uh, comes from Finextra and contains Amex and PayPal's investment into Kodat. So Kodat is the API-based platform for business data, and it has received strategic investments from PayPal Ventures and American Express Ventures. Kodat uses a single API to directly plug into the software used by small businesses, allowing banks, fintechs, and other FS players to access everything from the company's accounting software to payment terminals recording real-time transactions. The technology cuts out the need for Excel docs and PDFs sent via email, simplifying the process of sharing information. It has built up a strong customer base in Europe with clients including iZessel, who are owned by new investors PayPal. Coda has now set its sights on the US market. So um, a really interesting story, a really interesting company. I think any sort of solutions that can streamline ops and process for business and make it easier to share that type of information, you know, apply for financial products, et cetera, I think is a, uh, a welcome boon for, uh, for businesses who really do suffer when it comes to all of those types of activities. So back over to you, Mel. Thanks. So the next story is Apex Global offers merchants a pick and mix suite of buy now, pay later products. Global payment platform Apex is to offer merchants a choice of multiple buy now, pay later options from disparate players across 15 countries. Apex combines acquirers, gateways, shopping carts, alternative payment methods, and now buy now, pay later products into a single API connection to offer merchants a complete one-stop shop for consumer payments. Apex is integrating and partnering with over a dozen buy now, pay later um, globally, including initially OpenPay, ClearPay, Afterpay, Tabby, and Zip.co. I guess, yeah, this is just... uh, an increasing trend into the interest of buy now, pay later. And I think from the merchant point of view, you know, it makes sense to have um, the best payment options available for customers and, um, yeah, to be able to give consumers that choice and, um, 
I think different buy now, pay later firms offer different terms and um, different, you know, credit uh, options, I guess, Um, some over three years, some over six months. So completely flexible. I'm not sure that um, I, I don't really know how many you would actually need to be able to make this kind of decision. So I don't really know how they're promising the allocation of um, consumers shopping across all of these different partners. But certainly for the smaller businesses, smaller online merchants, I think it completely makes sense. And it's just one button um, and it connects you to it's like an aggregation of all of these different uh, all of these different options. So I think that makes sense. Um, back over to you, Ross. Yeah, this uh, buy now, pay later space is red hot and it's not going away, is it? It's not going anywhere. Okay, and finally, money for nothing as Crowdcube funding record is smashed. So tech startup nothing has smashed Crowdcube's fundraise record, previously set by Monzo, raising $1.5 million in 54 seconds. That's not fake surprise. I'm reading this for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Who is nothing and what are they doing? Their plan is to recreate the tech of the future from scratch, building something out of nothing. According to their website, we're rethinking everything from what we make and how we make it to what goes in and what goes out. A giant reset button for all things innovation. Founded in October 2020, they raised $7 million in a seed funding raise where they attracted some well-known investors, including Steve Huffman, CEO and co-founder of Reddit, Kevin Lynn, co-founder of Twitch, Josh Buckley, CEO of Product Hunt, Liam Casey, founder and CEO PCH, Paddy Cosgrave, founder of Web Summit and YouTuber Casey Neistat. Google Ventures invested $15 million in February 2021, Last week, they opened up their community funding round. We want our community to be part of our journey from the very start and play an active role in it, said Carl Pei, CEO and co-founder of Nothing. As part of this process, we'll also be electing a community member to our board of directors so that we're always kept in check and reminded of what users want. Investors will have access to Nothing's private community through which they will get exclusive benefits and insights into the uh, the company. So, I mean, this is a big reset for everything innovation, Anna. That sounds uh, sounds like something that people are obviously keen to get on board with. I have still no idea what they do based on what you've read, though, to be, to, to be fair. Uh, I, I, and I haven't Googled them. I, I'm hoping that if I do, I'll understand. Um, they do have a big lineup of investors, so I'm sure they know what they're doing. It is just, it's just they're called not, nothing and, and I, you know, we're rethinking everything. What? Um, but I'll, now they've, they've certainly like made me curious. So I will go and find out and then I'll know. And I mean, surely if they, they've smashed fundraising records and someone is understanding what they're, they're doing. Yeah, and I guess that's the point, right? Um, a name like nothing's going to drive curiosity. It's going to make people wonder uh, what you're doing. Ties neatly back to this idea of creating something out of yeah. nothing. But uh, Asia, what did you make of this one? Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to wrap my head around. Is it you know one of those no code, low code type of platforms where you know essentially any creator can kind of come in and, and build something from scratch? And if that's the case, then you know I'm all for the democratization of tech. Um, 
So, so hopefully it's that, and at least that's kind of what I'm getting from your reading of it. Um, so, and, and what I do find exciting though, is, um, you know, the idea that they are bringing the community, uh, onto their cap table. And, and as someone who, you know, I started angel investing a few years ago and it was very difficult to get myself on a cap table. You know, so there were a lot of opportunities that I would sort of wave a check and, and basically get bumped off, you know, in favor of someone else who just kind of is always on the cap table. Um, and so I do like the the idea of um, allowing regular people, right, um, like me and everyone else in our community to kind of be an investor. Um it's sort of, if I compare it to everyone is out there buying a lottery ticket, um, which has zero chances, but, you know, if you can have, make some educated, you know, guess at, at a fintech startup, then I think that's a lot better a chance than just, you know, throwing your money away on a lottery ticket. So I think it's pretty exciting that they're doing that. Um, I do love the idea of them bringing a community member to be on the board. Um, so that's kind of cool too. And I'm curious who they would pick. And I'm actually just like, that idea is bouncing around in my head. Um, I think, what was it? There was a, a Phoenix, was it? Phoenix, they did something similar as well in, in that they, although they only, they limited it to um, accredited investors. Um, so so I, I love this. I love this sort of democratization of access to a cap table, democratization of um, access to tech. Um, so this is, this is pretty cool, but I'll, I'll need to research more and, and figure out what this nothing really is. Yeah, it's a great idea. I mean, Mel, I guess as a, as a product lead, you'd only love the uh, the chance to go back to first principles and just redesign everything with a blank slate, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I also think that this is a really proficient, um, you know, marketing tool because actually they are creating value with this, right? So they've got quite a punchy um, board of investors. Um, they're not uh, they're not riding on their own egos and uh, the, you know the founding team is being pretty humble but they're promoting the people that are already interested in this and um, I think the fact that they've managed to raise so much money already then subsequent investors then are investing in something actually um, you know like they're investing in kinetic energy almost and the way that I see this working could be that instead of it just being a fintech play or just a technology play it is a melting pot potentially of ideas and almost like you know if you were to have um a research lab within a university that's particularly well funded from private investors just to see what get you know what shakes out and it could be uh, medicine we've seen some tremendous things happening from you know the oxford university and astrazeneca um, partnership in the uk like tremendous progress towards the covid vaccine that wouldn't have happened if the research community within that university didn't have so much funding so i think this is people's hopes and dreams of kinetic energy in this melting pot and it's very intriguing and the thing is as soon as they say what it actually is a segment of society will be like, oh man, is it that? Oh, rubbish. Whereas if they just, <laughs> if they don't say, then right. I feel like, you know, this is going to deliver more, at least more stakeholder value, if not shareholder value. Although I feel like they're well on the track for the shareholder value as well than like something like a SPAC. I agree with you. I think this is exciting. And especially if they're going back to uh, first principles and actually really looking at building something from nothing. It's huge potential there and it could go anywhere. 
All right. Um, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much as ever to all of our wonderful guests. Um, let's go around the virtual room. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Asia, let's start with you. Yeah, so we've we've kept our, our social media tags pretty simple. So it's Bank BLVD. You can find us on Twitter, um, on LinkedIn. If you just search for First Boulevard, you'll find us there. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Ms. Asia, so M S A S Y A. My DMs are always open, so I and I and I really do mean it. So feel free to kind of reach out with any questions you have on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. But I'm I'm on all of them except for TikTok except for TikTok. And I'll get there. I'll get there. I just got to figure out how to dance first. All right. Well, that's another thing to look forward to. Um, <laughs> uh, Anna, what about you? I'm not going to dance. <laughs> I'm going to say that. Um, <laughs> but I, I, th- I think we, I might end up having to, whenever I have to start messaging sources who are like, 17 and they're like just send it to me in dance form on tiktok then i'll have to uh but for now you can find me on twitter and it's just at anerrera and then obviously my stories are, are on reuters.com awesome anna um Melly, you on tiktok um i tried it um i i tried it i've got a funny story that i'll tell you later um i momentarily fell in love and then i realized i was in love with a fictional vampire and um, so then Ooh, I, 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 stopped, I stopped that in its tracks yeah uh, so you can find me on uh, on linkedin and at 11fs.com awesome excellent and as for me you can get me on at ross gallagher 07 on twitter um, and thank you for listening if you like what you've heard please do subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review it really does help us make this show better and it also helps others to find it As always, if you'd like to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.